Good morning. It's good to see you. <clears throat> uh, brethren from West Virginia, say hey. Uh, it was uh, nice being with them uh, in a uh, part of West Virginia. I've not been before, southern part, uh, right over the border of Kentucky and over the border of Ohio and uh, a part of the country I don't want to be in ever again in the winter. You know, <clears throat> This California boy doesn't handle that well. But uh, I never saw the sun while I was there. I asked them, did the sun shine here? Does it ever shine here? They said, not normally. I said, okay, I'm done. That, that's it. All right. <laughs> I noted that we only have uh, one of our three elders here today. The other two are out of town. As one guy said uh, a number of years ago when that happened where, the, where I was at a church, well, we don't have an eldership today. So there you go. I looked at him, are you serious? He's, yeah, don't have an eldership. I said, oh, come on. <laughs> no, glad for um, Zoom. You know, then we have an eldership maybe. So good, good, good to uh, see everybody. This, uh, this particular lesson is an extremely dangerous lesson to preach. Uh, uh, back when I was a young preacher, I, I preached on uh, the importance of assembling together and half the church never showed up again. So I, I thought, well, this is probably, probably not the best thing to preach on. I decided I'd never preach on it again. And I'm not preaching on it this morning, Riel, right? Uh, I'm not preaching on it this morning, but actually there, there, is, there is something that has gone on in our community and our nation and in our world that is, is so devastating, and, and I think a lot of it probably came out of COVID, but it was going on before that. Just as a lack of understanding of why we even come together, whether it be in a general assembly like this or whether it be in small groups, what really is the reason for it? You know, Christians have been going to church for 2,000 years now. I uh, multiplied that out uh, just, just, just on Sundays uh, to about 104,000 Sundays. So that, that's, a, that's a good amount of time. But in that amount of time, really what has happened is it's become common for Christians to not even know why. Uh, and a lot of people in the world do not know why. Uh, you hear people all the time saying, well, I'm a Christian and I, I, you know, I do what's right, but I, I certainly don't need to go to church. And then there's others, of course, who do go to church, quote unquote again, uh, but just look at it as something that's low priority or dependent upon their schedule or something that uh, I will do if I think it's worth the effort or maybe there's something really cool going on and maybe I'd go then. It, it is that uh, sort of thing. And we've just, many have just really lost the idea of what the scriptures say about this and of what the scriptures say about us being together and this togetherness is emphasized so much in Scripture. So that's really what we want to do. I'm not here to crank on anybody. I'm here to help explain what the importance is of our love for each other, our care for each other, our togetherness uh, with each other. I've mentioned this a number of times in the last few months, but most Christians do not recognize that there are numerous types of assemblies in the New Testament. We tend to practice one or two of these. <laughs> and, and yet there were many kinds of assemblies in the New Testament. And it's just interesting to make ourselves aware of this. And I'm going to hit this 
fairly rapidly because I think most people know what the scripture says about it. But first and foremost, we, we have used this term and been in our minds for a long time, worship service or worship services. And uh, I've mentioned before, it was been a little bothersome, now it's really bugging me. <laughs> so, and here's the reason. Uh, it, it, has, it has limited the purposes for why we're together and misappropriated why we're together. Uh, there are many different purposes in the New Testament for Christians to gather together. And none of it is a service performed by, by clergy for laity. And this is where that came from. It, it, it reminds me, and I hope we would start giving some thought to this, of the influence over the past thousand plus years of the Roman Catholic Church where things became where it was a service for those who came instead of understanding that the church together, gathered together was a participation in with all members as they come together and build one another up to love and good works. This is to be a participation. It is not a few individuals providing a service, so to speak. And, uh, and, and by the way, uh, it isn't really providing a service for God. Uh, God doesn't need our service. <laughs> he uh, needs us to understand how much we need to serve one another and serve the world. So notice how this comes together then. First and foremost, we see right in the very beginning in Acts chapter 2, and you notice in verse 42 and also verse 46, that we see that the disciples uh, were uh, devoting themselves to the uh, teaching, apostles' teaching, to, fel to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. Uh, those four things they were doing collectively, and he says they devoted themselves to this work. The word devotion is a strong word. It indicates this is what their focus was, to, to learn, to, uh, to come together and, 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 and to enjoy the fellowship together, and to break the bread in the Lord's Supper and to uh, also spend time in prayer. In verse 46, he even says that, they, that day by day they attended in the temple together and then broke bread also from there in house to house as they ate their meals with gladness and singleness of heart. When you go over to the sixth chapter of the book of Acts, we see a different kind of assembly as there were Grecian widows in the church that were being neglected. It's one of the first... In inside problems within a local church that we read about. And so the apostles summoned the full number of the disciples and, 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 and urged them to choose from them seven men who would be able to serve these Grecian widows and those others who were being neglected and make sure this work was done. I emphasize the full number of the brethren were called together, men and women alike. There was not a men's business meeting. Check. 
throw that out the window. Uh, There was a group of Christians who came together and chose seven men in order to partake and do this particular business. In chapter 12 of Acts, after uh, James had been put to death by Herod and Peter then had been arrested, verse 5 tells us, so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And then later down in verse 12, uh, when Peter is, is released, he comes to the house of Mary where many were gathered together and were praying. I, I always thought, wow, uh, I have a hard time staying awake at 2 a.m. I wonder if that's what time it was. <laughs> you know, they're in the middle of the night and we have many who are so concerned that they have gathered together uh, for prayer. And then in the 14th chapter of the book of Acts, and when Paul returns from his first journey, Paul and and Barnabas, the scripture says in verse 27, when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. How exciting. Whole church gathers to hear Paul giving a report of the work that he had done in that that, uh, uh, first journey. I, I... I would love to hear that lesson and how he detailed out. We went to Cyprus, and here's what happened at Cyprus. And then we went uh, over to Pamphylia, and then John Mark deserted us. What? <laughs> and then and he's telling the story of, a, and by the way, I got to Lystra, and they stoned me and left me for dead, and everybody thought I was dead. And so, uh, but I just got up and went on to Derby. Wow, uh, 90 miles away. Wouldn't you like to hear that particular report and how encouraging and how that would have uplifted and given boldness to the disciples there in Antioch. Then in chapter 15 and verse 4, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. And so Paul is, is taking this, this journey now to explain to the brethren, uh, both coming down to Judea, as verse 3 says, and then into Jerusalem and reporting these things. And then also down in chapter 15 and verse 22, uh, after they decide what they will do about the Gentiles and circumcision, it seemed good to the apostles, the elders, with the whole church to send some men back to Antioch and explain this situation. The whole church is involved here in this particular work. And then in 1 Corinthians 1.10, this is a passage that assumes there had to be some very, very serious and lengthy assemblies. Because Paul begins with the Corinthian letter, and he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you and that you, you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Now, most all of you know how, how divisive the church at Corinth was. So just answer in your own mind the question, how much would they have had to get together in order to solve the division among them? What would have had to take place for that to happen? Whew. 
This would be a major ordeal, but Paul expected them to fix it, and they were to fix it by coming together so that they all had the same mind, so that they spoke the same thing, so they were in in agreement on the direction that they were supposed to go in putting the Lord first in their lives. And then uh, we have, uh, in chapter Ephesians chapter 4, we have another example of an assumed uh, need for a number of types of assemblies. So uh, in chapter 4 and verses 12 through 14, we see that he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, and to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. So just notice what he emphasizes, emphasizes here. Uh, You are called upon as a church, he said, to equip saints for the work of ministry. So saints do this work for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. The only thing I want you to notice here first and foremost is until we all attain this, this unity, this knowledge, this maturity, I want, he says, all of you to attain this. Now what that means In case you didn't look it up in a dictionary, the word all doesn't exclude anybody. (laughs) I want all of you to come to maturity. What is the typical, you know this, what's the typical congregation? The typical congregation is we have people who aren't mature and stay not mature for years and years and years. And they're just noted as those who aren't mature and don't come to maturity. That's not what he wants. He wants all to come together to maturity. That's a pressing goal. And that equipping is to happen with each and every person. So how, how, what kind of assemblies, and this would go beyond something like this, what kind of assemblies are going to be needed to all of us come then to maturity? This is the goal that, that he is telling us has to take place. In 1 Corinthians 11, we, we can brief this, 1 Corinthians 11, 17-34, there was a Lord's Supper assembly. We have no idea if they did what we do, having a Lord's Supper assembly, a preaching assembly, a singing assembly, a prayer assembly, <laughs> etc. We have no idea if, they, if that's the way they did it or they had a special assembly in which they spent their time on the Lord's Supper. It seems, since they were abusing it and having a big meal, it probably took a longer time than than what we often do but still there was this Lord's Supper assembly in chapter 14 and verse 26 there was a revelation assembly there's my description of it it was an assembly in which everybody who spoke was delivering a knowledge type lesson or a knowledge revelation of what God had said. These are the use of spiritual gifts, but all of it was giving knowledge to build up the congregation. Verse 26 actually says, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. We don't have assemblies like that because all that knowledge has been put together in one book, 
but as close as we could get to it is an assembly like this, maybe as close as, as we could get to an assembly like that. He goes on to say, by the way, in this particular assembly, only men were the ones who were teaching. Only men who were the ones who were leading the assembly. That was, that was required. The women were not allowed to use their spiritual gifts in this particular uh, type of assembly. And then we can note a few conclusions. First off, as you would see, some of these assemblies are occasional, meaning they're not regular weekly assemblies. They were something that took place because of the occasion, because of an occasion. Be like us maybe having what we would call a gospel meeting or uh, a series of lectures by someone who's invited in on a particular message to help us grow more and not have to listen to the same guy all the time, you know, that, that sort of thing. Uh, so we, we have occasional assemblies for these purposes, but all of them have a purpose. All of them have a purpose to equip and to grow Christians and to cause us to become what we ought to, ought to be. And so, you, by the way, I'm going to draw one other conclusion here. Those of you younger probably don't even know what I'm talking about here to put this on the screen. Those of you who are older understand it completely because we used to be taught that a worship service had five acts of worship. Well, it does not, and I don't know where anybody thought that up. You worship any time you're doing singing or praying or whatever, and all of them don't have to be together to equal a worship service. And uh, that, again, uh, just, just something that we need to keep in our minds. These were varied assemblies. All of them were worship, giving honor and praise to God. And that is extremely important for us to understand. Now, let's talk a little bit about what the scriptures say about the biblical need. And again, we're not talking simply about an assembly like this, but the biblical need for assemblies and the explanation that, that God gives us for them. I'm just going to use three passages, and then uh, that will conclude uh, the lessons. We're going to look at three different passages to do that. The first one is Ephesians 4, uh, 1 through 16. Not going to read it all. Uh, not, gonna, not going to detail it out, anything like that. Just notice a few things that he talks about with the goal that God has for a local congregation. Here's the goal. First and foremost, he starts out in verses 1 through 6, that we are to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now again, keep asking yourself the question as we read these. How much are we going to have to be together? What kind of togetherness is it going to take for us to be able to do what he says in these first six verses? with humility and gentleness and patience and bearing one another in love and maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Just to illustrate this a little bit, my, one of my sons was I was talking to the other day, and he said he was, he was at a church where uh, the elders had decided it wasn't really uh, important for them to either meet together or meet uh, with the deacons or meet with the preachers or for that matter even meet with the church uh, be in, unless there was a problem. Okay, what, what that does is, is it creates a problem. <laughs> and then you'll have a lot of reason uh, to meet. You know how it is uh, 
whether it's a marriage, it's a friendship, it's us as brethren, the less you're together, the more suspicious you become of each other. Isn't that the truth? <laughs> it's just kind of crazy. If you're not around each other a lot, well, you just, you just start going, I wonder what they're up to. <laughs> so uh, imagine a marriage being like this. Honey, uh, I figure, you know, we're doing really good. We got this great marriage. How about we just decide we'll get together if there's a problem? Well, we're going to have a problem. <laughs> That's not the way love grows. Love grows through togetherness. And that's what he's emphasized in these first, seven, first six verses here in Ephesians 4. Once that is understood and that love has to grow by that togetherness, then he goes on in verses 11 through 16 and he talks about how, I should have put 7 through 16 here, how, how that the Lord now has gifted each of us and what he's really saying, we sometimes read this as God gave me a gift. Really what he's saying is you are the gift. You are a gift to the local church where you are a member. You are a gift to that church so that the church functions well and properly. I count my hand and my wrist and my feet as a gift that I have because some people don't have it. And they could lose it. And it's, of course, we take care of it. We're concerned about it. And so the whole body, he says, verse 16, summarizes it all. Uh, from whom? Christ. The whole body, emphasis again on whole body, joined and held together by every joint. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I'll tell you something crazy, you know, and I know my experience is limited. But I have never once, except when I came here and talked to our elders, I have never once seen a, seen a group of, of leadership in a church, or that for that matter, mostly members, who in talking about the importance of being together, went to this passage and said, this proves why it's important to be together. I don't know, how do you get to that point? And I've heard discussions over and over again. In fact, since COVID, nearly every place I go, oh, we don't meet at that time anymore. Well, we quit meeting on Sunday night. Well, we quit doing that. Quit. Just never got back to it. Do you understand that? That is important. That is the job. We are to be knit and joined together. And then, of course, somebody says, well, there's only, I don't, uh, the, the only time we're ever required to meet is Sunday morning. What does this mean? How are we going to accomplish this? Honey, I'll see you once a week, and then we'll just have this great relationship. I don't know how to get around that. I wrote a book on it and never published it. So there you go. Took me weeks to write it. Maybe it'll somehow come together someday. The edifying of the body is a critical part of what God has asked us to do. And I don't know how we're supposed to accomplish this maturity goal that all of us have unless we're devoted to what the Lord said for us to be devoted to. 
We just simply can't accomplish that. Second passage, the one that was read for us by Trenton in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and of course we could spend quite a while talking about 1 Corinthians 12, but we notice specifically that God, as verse 18 says, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. Now first and foremost, look at the word body. It's a it's a metaphor. We have used the phrase, well, we're the body of Christ over and over and over again to the point that we're forgetting that this is a symbolic way of describing who we are. We are a body. And he describes the whole brotherhood as he does here as a body, but he describes the local church as a body. And a metaphor for a body indicates that it is impossible for one member to be the body or for one member to function independently. We need all of the members to function together. And if you don't believe that, try cutting off your arms and legs and see how well you get through life. It's not working. There needs to be every part of this. In fact, we read in Ephesians 4, when he talked in verse 16 about every part doing its share causes or makes the body grow. If we ever have a question as, why does the body not grow? Why does any individual church not grow? Part of it, you go right back to every member isn't functioning. When we function together, you're going to kill it, man. You're going to lay it. You're going to put the Lord's work on fire. It is going to go crazy. But every part has to be fulfilling their particular gift. One member cannot function. And the reason is one member isn't talented enough. Doesn't have enough time. He gave each one individual talents and gifts to function in the body connecting together also forces us to learn to love what's our goal we got to have the love of god how's that going to be established that's going to work by how we learn to love each other is it easy to love each other well sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't Sometimes it's rough patch and we have to work through it. Love isn't determined during the good times. Love is determined when it's hard, when it's difficult, when it's, when it, it's one of those things where I said something and you really took offense to it and I didn't even know it. And you have a choice of being bitter about it or talking to me about it. Nothing that this has happened right now, but just laying those things out. Or just saying, who cares? I've said terrible things too. Uh, way it goes. But we have to work through things. How does a marriage become fantastic? It's not fantastic on the honeymoon. Not really. That's brevity. A brevity of fantastic. 
It's fantastic after you work over and again through those rough, difficult times when you don't want to even look at each other <laughs> because it's so hard and because you're so hurt or you're so offended. And that's the kind of love He's pushing us to have. And, and that connecting together causes us to do that. God forces, isn't that crazy? God forces us into this relationship and says, you can't break it up. I will not allow it. Figure it out. He forces us to do that. Why? Because it's the only way you learn to love. You don't learn to love by yourself. You don't learn to love just going out and doing your thing. You don't learn to love that way. We only learn to love by touching one another, by being the people who work together in a body. That's how that happens. And there's a lot of devotion and dedication it takes to doing that. The eternal nature of God's work makes this a precedent in our lives. There is a monster goal here of working together not only to build each other up, but to save a lost world. And we don't do that independently. That can't happen independently. Every part does its share, causing the growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love, Ephesians 4 and verse 16. So there's a monster importance here. And remember this, as Ecclesiastes says, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. We build strength, and that strength is what causes the world to look at us and say, wow, they must be the disciples of Christ. That's exactly what Jesus said in John 13, 34, and 35. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples when you love each other. How do you attain that? It's not an emotional, just gushy-gushy love. It goes far beyond that. It is that and more. It is a lay down our lives for each other kind of love. And John talks about that. Which, by the way, I didn't mention. This sermon is introducing a few sermons that one of our members here asked me to do on how to love one another. So uh, this, this, is the, this is basically the first step. Third, third passage, final text. If he, Hebrews chapter, five, uh, chapter 10, uh, this, this is, of course, the, the funny one to me. It's always hilarious when somebody quotes, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. And you go, oh, goodness, are you going to pound on me on that? <laughs> we, we, we get in that. And, and so it, it is most commonly used text and those most commonly misused text. This text has been misused so much that it becomes an irritating text to us. So let's take a look at it more carefully. First and foremost, place the text within the overall message of the letter. Look what he has done up to this point, showing us the greatness of Jesus as our high priest who has taken his own blood into the most holy place and is forever there offering that blood for our sins so that we can, verse 19 of Hebrews 10, boldly 
Come in, come in with confidence and boldness and enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, dot, dot, dot. And then he says, 22, 23, and 24, let us. What I'm about to tell you, the Hebrew writer says, is I have spent 10 chapters, and he marked the chapters, by the way, was perfect chapter divisions. I spent 10 chapters showing you the greatness of our high priest Jesus and what he's done and the suffering he's gone through. And on that basis, here's what I want you to do. Let us, let us, let us. First and foremost, let us draw near with a pure heart. Let us draw near with a pure and true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed of pure water. Every individual Christian, he's asking, draw near to God. That is a purposeful and not effortless approach. Draw near to God. That takes tremendous effort. Keep your conscience and your heart clean. God has cleansed you. He sprinkled the blood of Jesus on your heart. You've been washed through baptism, uh, symbolically, obviously. You've been washed with this. And that's the way it goes. That hurt, poor girl. And she whacked her head. Uh, <laughs> uh, that, that, is the, that is the beautiful picture. And then, uh, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. He's promised. He's faithful. Don't waver. And then thirdly, he says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. The first two had to do with simply our individual, what we do individually, and the third one has to do with what we do for one another. So consider how he's done. These are regular assemblies to keep each of us growing to maturity. All the way through this letter, chapter 2, chapter 3 through chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, in every one of those chapters, then now in chapter 10, he has given a monster warning about you're going to fall away if you don't stop doing what you're doing. And the need to pay close attention to what has been revealed, knowledge and the need for each other to be together in order to build this up. And that is he's done, lest we slip away, lest we allow it to drip. It's imperceptible. Probably no one here, if I said anybody here drifting, anybody here slipping, probably no one here go, yep, that's me. Give it some thought. We need to take a careful look, each of us. That's your responsibility, not mine. Each of us take a careful look. Where am I now compared to where I was a year ago, ten years ago? Am I slipping? Am I letting other things take 
control of me and not put what God has said for us to be first. Look at 3.13 of Hebrews. He says, but exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I think the most important part of that one is just the deceitfulness of sin. How deceitful it is for us to begin to slip. But here is where I think my problem, maybe our biggest problem is, why did we think the 1025s, Hebrews 1025 was a Sunday morning assembly? In the context of the book, that's impossible. Probably included, but this is not what he's talking about. He's talking about assemblies in which we come together to stir each other up to love and good works. But the problem there is that we think the Hebrew writers exaggerating our possibility of failing. But that's because we don't define fail properly. We fail when he's not first in our lives. We fail when oh, he cannot say with the Apostle Paul, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's when we start failing. We fail, as Romans 1 said, that the Gentile world failed when they did not treat him as God, neither gave him thanks. That's where it all started. That's where the failure begins. We think the Hebrew writer is exaggerating. He's not exaggerating. He's telling us plainly, this is an easy thing to have happen. He's telling us the very opposite. We are very, very vulnerable to failure and very vulnerable to slipping and drifting. And that's why he spent this whole letter on this and how important that was. We need to think about this word covetousness. Ever heard of anybody withdrawn from because they were covetous? <laughs> Plainly says it in 1 Corinthians 5, withdraw from anybody who's covetous. And you go, what? How am I going, to, how are we going to withdraw from somebody who's covetous? Covetousness is just putting things before the Lord. Let's all go forward and repent. <laughs> Whoa. We need to be careful. What are we doing instead of what we ought to be doing as far as our togetherness and building that love and building the equipping that's supposed to be done? And then you notice the little phrase in Hebrews 10.25, and all the more. Not neglecting meeting together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more. The encouraging here is taking place in the assembly. If you neglect, you can't encourage. If you neglect, you can't stir one another up to, look, to love and good works. And I want you to do it all the more knowing that the day, in this case it was a day of judgment on Israel, the destruction of Jerusalem, knowing the day is approaching. We have a day approaching, and we need to do and devote ourselves in the same kind of way. And most importantly, this command is not primarily about me. I'm not primarily about you. It's primarily about considering one another. There is no checklist here. There is no oh, did you go to church? There's none of those things. It's every one of us need to bear fruit because Jesus said in John 15, if we don't bear fruit, then he will cut the branch off. 
and throw it in the fire. We have to bear fruit. And we need each other to urge each other to love and good works. Urge each other to love. Urge each other to good works. I need you. You need everyone to do that. That's part of what we're about. Meeting together was never about attending a worship service. It was never about going to church. It was never about, here's the definition of faithfulness. How disgusting. It's about us honoring God by urging and encouraging one another to bear fruit for Him. That's what it's really about. So what what do I want you to get across in this? Not go to church. Not don't miss. But give your all. Dedicate yourself to your brothers and sisters. Dedicate yourself and consider one another. And the strength of any local church that you're in, the strength of that church and the glory that is to be given to God. That's, that's the message. I hope, hope you see it. And don't half the church not show up tonight because I preached on it. <laughs> By the way, cool question tonight we're going to talk about that it was given from one of the members. How do you deal with, how does the Bible teach us to control evil thoughts and grow to have good thoughts? And it's a beautiful question, and that's what we'll discuss in our evening message. So we're going to sing a song right now, if there's any way we can help you in your service to God. We certainly want to do that, and you are welcome to uh, step forward or talk to us afterward and uh, as we together stand and sing. <laughs>